Welcome to DevOps Decrypted, episode 22, where we talk all things DevOps. I'm your host, Laura Laramore, here with our Adaptivist panel, Matt Saunders, Rasmus, Jobin, and we also have our CIO, Neil, with us today as well. We have a special guest today, Gene Kim, who is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and researcher. Welcome, Gene. I am so happy to be here. Good afternoon to you all. Good morning here. <laughs> so, Gene, we have copies of the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project in all of our offices. Uh, but now I hear there's a new book to be adding to the library entitled Wiring the Winning Organization. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it was like writing this book and what generated the idea for it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, thank you for the question, Laura. Yeah. So maybe as some background, I've been studying high performing technology organizations since 1999. And that was a journey I started back when I was a CTO and technical co-founder of a company called Tripwire in the information security space. And so I was there for 13 years. I left in 2010. And so our goal is to study these amazing high performing organizations that were the best at dev, the best at ops, the best at InfoSec and compliance. And, uh, we want to understand what, uh, you know, how did they make their good to trade transformation? You know, so that we could other, you know, so we could figure out how other organizations could replicate those amazing outcomes. And so the big surprise in that journey was how it took me into the middle of the DevOps movement, which I think is so urgent and important. And one of the most amazing things that uh, happened in that journey was uh, uh, meeting Dr. Steven Spear at the MIT Sloan School of Business. And uh, that was in 2014. And uh, I cannot uh, overstate just how much his thinking has influenced my own. In fact, the, the DevOps handbook was at least one year late <laughs> because of that course. It was like, oh my gosh, we've missed uh, so many important things. And so uh, the, the quest that we've been on for three, four years is uh, really trying to figure out what is in common between Agile, DevOps, the Toyota production system, Lean, safety culture, resilience engineering. And our conclusion is really that they're all incomplete expressions of a, a far greater whole. And uh, I, I got to tell you, it's the most been the most uh, intellectually challenging thing I've ever worked on, but also the most uh, intellectually rewarding because, you know, they say the goal of science is, is, is to explain the most with the least. And yeah, I think it's uh, really uh, been dazzling to say, you know, in any transformation, there's really three mechanisms of performance, you know, uh, and, you know, you can express everything we see, you know, uh, in terms of these kind of other frameworks, you know, through these very three simple things. Anyway, so uh, that's what I've been working on. And uh, that's been, it's been, so fun to have the book finally out there and you know, actually getting people to react to it. I'm hoping that uh, it was rewarding and at least interesting to read. It was also interesting to listen to. So I was I was on it with Audible. That's the way that I listen to my books. <laughs> and it was interesting to hear you talk about. Um, you're right. You you made the assertion that not only have you found something sort of fundamental, first principle that leads up to agile DevOps. You were even talking about team topologies. You're talking about a lot of these other principles falling under the sun general construction. How did you land on this being? The underpinnings of the construction, like are are the ifications the um, mm, the underpinnings yeah. that you're referring to? Yeah, 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 yeah right, right. Uh, that's uh, fantastic, Neil. So, yeah, there, there are three of them. Let's give them some names, um, and maybe I'll answer that. The well, yeah, let's say what they are first. Yeah, so uh, we're saying that basically there's really three mechanisms which leaders use to make it so that people can do their work easily and well. And I think that's really the underpinning uh, assertion that we make is that you know since the job of leaders isn't to actually do the work, you know it stands the reason that uh, their job must be, you know, to help others do their work well. And we're saying that there's kind of three main ways they do it. One is that uh, they have to slowify. There's some problems where you don't want uh, 
you know, people making all their mistakes in production environments where the consequences are so high, you can't undo, you can't learn <laughs> because uh, learning is, you know, fundamentally experimental and experiential. Um, and so, though, yeah, that one's all about slowing down to speed up. Uh, we have many adages for that, you know, like, uh, um, you know, stop sawing to sharpen the saw. It's interesting that there's no word in English that actually says that one concept, uh, you know, the notion of making a short-term investment for a longer-term gain. So we thought it was important enough where we actually made up a word. The second uh, is about simplification. Uh, so the first is slow-fying, so moving some work um, in time, so it's not in production, but in planning and practice. The second one is making the problems easier to solve. And so we know that people are very bad at solving problems, um, and it's very difficult to solve problems when everything is in a big intertwined a uh, big ball of mud where small uh, actions in one spot can ripple out and cause massive uh, global chaos and, and, and uh, uh, catastrophic outcomes. And so uh, simplification is all about dividing large problems into small ones. Um, so, you know, one of them is like waterfall to agile, right? Incrementalism. The other one is about modularization, you know, like that's the Amazon API rearchitecture project. Um, and the other one is sequentialization. Uh a linearization. So that, that's the Toyota production system it's for sequential activities. So what modularization does for parallel activities, sequ uh, linearization does for uh, interdependent sequential activities. Um, and the third one is about amplification, the notion that we have to take weak signals of failure and uh, amplify them so they can be decisively acted upon to prevent, detect, or correct better. So uh, yeah, to answer your question, Neil, uh, the process was really trying to show all these disparate practices, you know, across all these different frameworks, like, you know, whether it's uh, um, Conway's Law, whether it's Team Topologies, um, <clears throat> all these things that we know uh, are important, and then try to synthesize what is a um, more a simpler whole. And I love the saying, anyone can take something complex, make it, I'm sorry, anyone can take something simple, make it complex. <laughs> it's a little more of a trick to take something complex and really make it simple. Anyways, uh, sorry for the long answer. No, that's great. I mean, um, I learned a lot from that simple quick answer itself. Uh, quick question. All these efficacious, you know, it does make a lot of sense. But at the same time, I, by the way, I'm the head of DevOps here at Adaptivist. And when we go and transform organizations, there's a question that might arise. Why slowification? That's the opposite of what we are trying to achieve, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, simplification, amplification. Yeah, absolutely. We get it. We want to do it, right? Why should we be slowing down the point of hiring you or getting getting your help or you know moving to this new fancy tool is to you know do it thousand times a day, right? Yeah. Why should we even slow down? So can you maybe go a little bit deep into that particular efficacy? Yeah, mind? absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, and, and and you're so right. I think the uh, uh, in fact. Right. Uh, we don't want to be doing four releases a year that don't feel so good. We want to do more like 136,000 per day, right? Like that Amazon uh, reported doing in 2015. Um, and you're talking about slowification. Uh, or maybe it sounds like, you know, we want to ship more features and yet you're trying to, uh, you know, pay down this quote technical debt, <laughs> right? And uh, do things that don't sound like features to me. And so the, what they have in common is the notion that um, at some point, you know, we have to slow down to speed up. Um, and that's not free, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, there's been so many attempts to be able to say, you know, quality is free. Uh, you have to, um, uh, you know, this is a short-term uh, correction, you know, for a longer-term gain. And, you know, what's 
we thought it was interesting that there was no word in English that had this. The Germans do, and it's uh, it's called verbesserung, the notion of uh, you know your uh, cognitive, you're deliberately slowing down, you know, to speed up in the long term. And we actually hypothesize that maybe the absence of a specific word in the management literature is actually prevents us from actually saying and expressing something that's actually very important. If you can't say it, you can't think it, maybe. <laughs> so there are many other words that we uh, looked at. Um, you know, one was uh, uh, deceleration. But, you know, it's like it's, it's, the point isn't to decelerate, right? The point is, you know, you want to ultimately accelerate. Um, maybe one other thing that we thought was really important about this was that um, one of the influences, the primary influence for slowification is uh, Dr. Uh, Kahneman and Tversky. So that's uh, Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky. So Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for uh, 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 for his contribution, saying there's really two modes of thinking. You know, this uh, mode one, system one, which is all about so like slow, deliberative, contemplative, creative. And then there's mode two, which is system two, which is all about sort of instinctual, fast biases, habits, routines. And, you know, when we are doing most work, you know, we, we are often, um, you know, we only can access most of the time system two, right? To actually um, figure out how to do things differently requires activating system one. And we say, we, uh, say that, you know, there's something very uh, specific that needs to happen in knowledge work as well. Right, is that we have to sort of trigger the slowification so we can activate system one, you know, so we can actually develop new modes of thinking, develop those, um, you know, we've got to figure out what's actually going on so we can automate it. We've got to figure out, um, you know, how to reserve time, you know, to actually, you know, do the automation work, right, again, for that longer-term gain. Yeah, and uh, I had thought about it too, because I'm, I've been in a similar boat as Jobin on the whole, like, slowification is a great word for a book. It gets people <laughs> talking, which is probably on purpose. But then when you're trying to sell something to clients, it's like, whoa, what are <laughs> you doing here? And I was also trying to think about it behind the scenes, like, like related to the Agile Manifesto and all these kind of things. Like, It's not really so much that you're trying to slow everything down. It's that you're trying to be more thorough or even more like mindful. Mm. So it's almost like a slowification. It's more like a, a thoroughification or mindful. <laughs> but mindful and other terms have gotten you know hyped up on other things too. But I, I can see it makes sense that yeah you are slowing down to go go faster you're really just making space to be more thorough and thoughtful in your process yeah i i love uh what you just said rasmus i mean i i think uh i love the fact that you said yeah it embodies a concept uh that you've developed over time a sensibility and uh my fondest hope is that um you know, people will be able to, you know, in their daily work if, or, or when they find themselves in situations where things are going terribly wrong um, and uh, the learning can't happen right now <laughs> and we have limited ability to undo, uh, that people will say, this is an opportunity uh, for us to slow-fi and do all these things like, you know, tabletop exercises, better planning, do rehearsals, to do, you know, set ourselves up so that we can get to a place where, you know, uh, the example that we use in the book is uh, Chaos Monkey. You know, Chaos Monkey is one of the best examples of slowification where they made all these investments so that ultimately they were able to deliberately inject faults in the production environment so they could always get a sense of confidence that they could survive things when inopportune things happen, which is a reason why in what, April 21st, 2011, they were one of the few services that actually survived the first massive you know, AZ 
availability zone failure at uh, in AWS. So yeah, I, I love what you just said, Rasmus. I um I want to echo this too because one of my favorite YouTube videos I used to send people who come from a world that wasn't tech that I used to know and now I live in this tech world they ask me sort of what that world's like. John Cleese did a really good take on this in the eighties. Have you have you seen it where he was he was speaking to a um a management sort of seminar thing I believe it was in Polish the version that I saw it doesn't really matter but he was talking about open mode and closed mode thinking and closed mode thinking is what you're what you're calling uh, mode two and mode two is basically once you know the idea you shut off everything that's possible around you to distract you and you just march towards that's a sprint that's yeah that's agile that's that's that that's that style of agile let's call it that way open mode thinking completely different there's no wrong answer in open mode thinking there's never all you're trying to do is expand as many opportunities as you can it turns out the stanford design schools method follows this pattern right these things have a lot of very good um lineage across a number of different areas it's true um, yeah, but I, I agree. Rasmus slow is an interesting word in that context. But yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, just to uh, tell you kind of where my head went is, you know, when you're in the fast-moving uh, production environment, you're in the middle of an outage. Uh, you have no idea what's going on. You're just trying to sense make. There's certain um, avenues of thinking that are not actually readily available to you, right? I mean, uh, uh, chances are you're in this fight-flight. Um, mode, uh, you're actually having to rely on a lot of uh, routines and training and like previous experiences. It's actually not the best time, you know, for you one to actually, you know, have a, a wide, expansive, you know, uh, ranging questions like, okay, <laughs> what's the underlying causality that's actually happening here? Those are actually not uh, modes of thinking that are available to you at that time. And, and there's actually... Uh, even for people who are really good at it, they're often not in the loop close enough, you know, for the people in the middle of that situation to access. Like one example is in the uh, is in the Apollo um, eleven, uh, you know, during the Apollo eleven landing, I was talking to the person who uh, wrote the lunar landing software, who was um, uh, uh, so when the Program fault codes, the 1201, 1202 errors came up. <laughs> and apparently the uh, Neil Armstrong actually lost all displays, you know, um, of like, you know, altitude, rate of descent, et cetera. Uh, there were all the people at the MIT um, uh, labs, uh, they were listening in it, but they were not in the loop. They were not able to actually contribute a lot of useful data for the landing that's happening you know, on the moon, you know, millions of miles away. Um, so... Open, close thinking, you know, uh, within our own brains, they're maybe not able to be accessed at the time. And there's all these expertise that we're not able to retrieve because it's either too far away temporally or spatially where they can't actually directly contribute to the problem solving. Anyways, it's just fascinating. No, I completely, right? I completely agree. And um, I have to say, as the child of an army colonel, it was very interesting to see that your forward is about or from you know the head of the Navy, and basically going, look, if I'd have read this, it'd have been so much easier to do my job. I mean, how much more of a you know of a promotion can you possibly get? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, do you want to run a Navy? Well, yeah, hang out with Gene. You know, he knows what's going on. <laughs> it's great. Um, one of the things, the reason why I bring up the John Cleese example is because one of the things that John Cleese talked about way back then was around um, setting the right environment for the different kinds of modes of thinking. And it's exactly as you were describing just a second ago. Your closed mode thinking, you need a very specific environment to enable and be successful. You need to be able to remove distractions. You need to be able to know that you're only focusing on one thing and there's the deadline, etc. In the world of, well, in, in the book, you, you definitely identify these three ifications. We've, we've focused on one of them so far. You also talk quite a lot about 
the shape and the the melding of an organization through this metaphor of circuitry. Now, circuitry um, triggered all sorts of thoughts in my head, some of them biological, some of them, I mean, I went quantum physics for a bit. It's like, okay, what is the circuit really? Like, what is the circuit really, Gene? Like, what do you, what do you mean? Because when you wrote, when you look up social circuitry in Wikipedia, what you get back is how a brain is wired to be social. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what you're talking about. You're talking about the shape of an organization, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, yeah, so we said there's essentially three layers of which where work is performed. One is layer one is like the work in front of us. So that could be the code. Uh, that could be the binary that's actually running in production. It could be the uh, the patient in front of us. Uh, layer two is the tools of which we work through. So it could be the platforms in which our code runs. It could be the IDE, right? And there's usually teams associated with supporting those uh, technologies. And then layer three is what we're calling the social circuitry. It's the organizational wiring and I love that Winston uh, Churchill quote, you know, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us, right? As leaders, we create the social circuitry and thereafter it shapes us. We create the architecture that we work within and forever after it shapes us. And what we are saying is that leaders are ultimately responsible, you know, for creating the wiring of which everyone works within. And so when we were talking about the Amazon um API re-architecture in the early 2000s, you know, they had found themselves in an architecture where it used to serve them well. They could do hundreds of deployments per year, <laughs> you know, when they had basically two products, books and music, and things got harder and harder uh, to the point where they can only do tens of deployments a year. Most deployments didn't actually finish. Um, and they were caught in this uh, social circuitry, this architecture that required even small things to require massive amounts of communication and coordination and signaling and prioritization and sequencing and deconfliction and worst, you know, uh, you have to deploy together. And so even anything going wrong caused every, you know, the the deployment to abort. And and so the whole magic of the two pizza team was, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos saying that he wanted less communication, not more. (laughs) He wanted teams to be able to work independently of each other so they could be yeah, deployed towards Amazon's largest problems uh, on behalf of customers. Uh, and that's actually what led to this hard partitioning between teams so that teams could regain independence of action uh, so that they could independently develop, deploy, and deploy value to customers you know, without that need to communicate and coordinate. So if I could just make a little detour. Um, I read the, yeah, there's a fantastic interview of uh, then Amazon CTO, Werner Vogel, still CTO, and you know he talked about that era, and I read that paper 20, 40 times, and I missed this one phrase until this earlier this year where he talked about this ridiculous situation that the Amazon digital team, so it's Kindle, music, uh, video, where uh, you know whenever you ordered one of those products, you still had to provide a physical shipping address. And he said, yeah, it was ridiculous, but they had to go to 60 different ordering teams and say, could you please change it so we wouldn't have to provide the ship- physical shipping address? And the response was, you know, we didn't budget for it. And so they were stuck, right? And so, um, you know, that's what led to that famous memo about, you know, thou shall, teams shall only communicate and coordinate with each other through these uh, APIs. And that, that was a rewiring of the organization. And so leaders rewire either through slow-fying, so moving some activities from production to planning and preparation. They can change the nature of uh, how we work so that uh, they're more modular, they're more linear, um, or they're less uh, large uh, batch waterfallish, or, or uh, we change the signal so that you know uh, we create a system where even weak signals of failures are noticed and acted upon, 
or the worst case is, you know, we accidentally create a culture where weak signals are suppressed or even extinguished entirely, right? Which is obviously not so good. That's a hilarious example that feels so relevant because I work with a client that's in the UK. And even if I have to put in a ticket to get access to a repository, I have to enter a shipping address. And since I'm in the US, <laughs> the UK, I apparently live in Buckingham Palace when it comes to sending me things related to my repo request to GitHub. So <laughs> there's so much fun stuff out there. And and much like Neil pointed out that case study with the, with the Navy or the, the intro, there are a lot of interesting case studies that you put in that book, and including a lot of older ones that probably hint at conceptual similarities in this problem space dating back probably like to the punch card era <laughs> or even down that because people are still people and the tech just changes. Like one thing we've done previously in this podcast, we talked about demystifying Kubernetes because Kubernetes is hard. <laughs> and pretty much at the end of the session, we can, we got to the conclusion, you know what? Kubernetes still is complex. You just kind of move the complexity around and you have, instead of like having a guy that's just physically wiring things in a server room, you now have Kubernetes experts that's just digitally <laughs> wiring virtual hardware. You haven't really changed it, <laughs> but you have incidentally gained like a, a, a scaling benefit. Yeah. But the social change hasn't really been there. So that leaves me with a few questions for you. In that, do you think we're truly gaining any radical social benefits over time, or are we just solving the same problems over and over again with new tech and new terms? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so let me, one of the most shocking things, one of the things that was so fun working with uh, uh, Dr. Seam Spear was the fact that our backgrounds, in, in, we, we come from totally different backgrounds. Uh, he, he, his work started uh, studying Toyota and its production, you know, famous production system. You know, he wrote the 1999 decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system, which I read in the early 2000s. Uh, he worked in aviation uh, engine design and uh, plant safety um, at, at Alcoa. And you know, my background is primarily software. And yet we had read so many of the same papers and we had uh, a common language. And, and it was so interesting. So I learned many things. But here's like one of the shocking things I learned only in the last 90 days. And he said that hospitals were actually very easy to manage in the 1950s compared to now. Because essentially you had two functional specialties, doctors and nurses, and very little technology. Uh, compare that to these days where there are scores of functional specialties just within sort of the, the doctors, <laughs> right? You have the, uh, even radiology, which used to be just x-rays, is now called imaging because it involves five different potential technologies, each with different teams, <laughs> you know, supporting them. Uh, now there's pharmacy and supply chain and uh, and so forth. And it means, and it explains why it's so difficult to great, get great healthcare because the number of functional specialties has gone up by, you know, somewhere between, you know, 40 and 100x. And so uh, it introduces this, the big aha moment is the responsibility, the job that the layer three circuitry has to do was so much easier back in the 1950s, um, both in terms, because the functional specialties were fewer, there are fewer technology silos, you know, compared to now. And I think what you're describing is, um, you know, very similar to technology today is that, uh, we have so many more functional specialties. I'll just name a couple, right? The, the security authentication authorization. Uh, you got the database security. You have data masking. You have uh, containers. You have Kubernetes. You have 
observability, (laughs) all these things. These are all things I don't want to do. I I would far rather, in fact, my worst Thanksgiving of uh, last year, I spent one very unrewarding week learning about logging. It wasn't something I particularly wanted to learn, Java logging. Um, it was actually turned out to be somewhat important. <laughs> and uh, 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 But it was something I finally had to learn. But I, did I really care about it? No. Did I get a lot of joy and reward learning about Java logging? No. <laughs> but there was actually, was, I fi- was it important? Yes. Uh, would I far rather have relied on like a group that whose entire role in life was to solve logging for Thousands of engineers. Yes. <laughs> is that available to solo developers? No. Anyway, so I think uh, this is, is the fact that there's so many uh, specialties. I think this is actually what allows, you know, where being big is uh, an inherent advantage, potentially an advantage, because it allows for these different specializations, right, that can empower and arm uh, and uplift, you know, thousands of other developers. Uh, and it's a, it's a it's a shame, Rasmus, when we create these functional specialties when there's not even a problem. It's not even relevant to the main problem being solved, right? We just now stood up yeah, another Kubernetes specialist group that introduce makes it even more difficult for work to get out the door, <laughs> right? With no actual benefit. I mean, that that would be a shame if that were actually happening, right? <laughs> yeah, this actually reminds me a bit about how I have interpreted the rise of platform engineering because there should be a group that like focuses on logging and then they expose here are ways to do logging in part of some sort of platform like an idp like, like backstage and so on but that's still can i give you one example of like uh one of my favorite examples right i love platform engineering love you know how that's uh team topology articulates need for it, but one of my sh- most shocking um examples of this was uh a small team of five to eight engineers at Google, and they're called the Java platform team. And their goal was to be very good at Java because it turns out like, you know, the thousands of Google developers who are, you know, have a decade's history with Java, uh, even they struggle with the migration between Java 8 and Java 11, that they were, (laughs) it actually triggered, you know, these out of memory errors because of the way that, um, uh, um, you know, garbage collection was different in, you know, G1, GC. Anyway, the point is that as teams migrated to Java 11 and the new version of JVM, uh, the rate of container out of memory errors went through the roof. And it turns out that one of the reasons is that uh, the developer instinct is to just ask for more memory. And it still caused errors, which caused them to increase more memory. So you had these services in production that were using wildly more memory than they should. And so this team figured out, all right, how do we... Um, you know, how, how do we fix this for developers? But they actually had a longer-term goal of... Um, sp- making it so that services spend more time in garbage collection because the most scarce and most expensive commodity at Google is not compute, is memory. And so uh, they had the, they uh, showed these experiments where you could get, uh, you know, Google services, you know, running in a tenth of memory, right, saving tens of millions of dollars. Right? And this is just in the pilot. Anyway, just so great that small teams can have incredible, great, incredible benefits, you know, for thousands of engineers and, you know, impacting, you know, tens of millions of dollars, you know, uh, potentially heading to hundreds of millions of dollars. And you would, you would call that small team of Java, let's call them zealots, uh, let's call them aficionados, <laughs> maybe aficionados, that's probably better. You'd call them a slowification team, 
right? Because really, they're not in the they're not in the day to day dregs of I'm migrating this version of this JVM on this day. They're going, how does one think about JVMs in the first place? How, what is the? Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, their product is um, taking advantage of modularization, right? So that. Uh, yeah. Uh, for the developers, their world didn't change at all, right? Their interface to the outside world didn't change at all, and yet they gain the benefit, all the benefits <laughs> of what the small team is doing. Um, you know, in terms of memory usage, cost, um, uh, uh, power consumption, etc. Yeah, we know these problems all too well. Building a JVM product <laughs> on top <Yeah>. of <laughs> on top of a JVM, right? That's that's a that's a very common trope, I think, but. Uh, so, but when you talk about why in the organization as such, will these small teams be the bottleneck, right? I mean, will they be the uh, single point of failure? That is always the concern, isn't it? And how do you scale this to a much, much wider organization? Yeah, I love, I mean, this is a great question. And I think what is amazing about these platform teams is uh, they, because everything is either self-service, right? Uh, so that they can't become the bottleneck, um, you know, because everything is on demand. You don't have to open up a ticket. You don't have to pestle them for weeks. <laughs> you can get what you need. You know, I can get the logging to go where it needs to. I can scrub all the data, you know, without waiting for someone to actually, you know, work on my ticket. Um, that's how these amazing platform teams and cloud have, uh, you know, empower enable so much developer productivity. But there's another thing that platform teams do, uh, which is that they work behind these fixed interfaces so that they can experiment independent of someone else. In other words, if the, every time the this Java platform team at Google wanted to potentially change a setting, they had to communicate and coordinate with a thousand of other developers um, you know, at Google. And if any one of them said, oh, no, not right now, I'm working on something very critical, yeah, then they would be stuck, <laughs> right? Uh, and yet, what happens instead is that just with any good modular system, you know, teams can, uh, you know, behind this interface, they can change independently, they can experiment, uh, they can try, they can search a large exploration space, right? And it's like you now have a hundred roulette wheels that you can spin. And if any of them hit, then you can sort of shift that in and take the winnings, right? And if they don't hit, you don't change anything at all, right? So you take the wins and you ignore the losses. And I think that was a fascinating way that economists talk about the benefits of modularity. Uh, so to your uh, point, right, you know you're doing something wrong. Um, when a platform team inadvertently creates a bottleneck, I think it's either because they violated self-service or they're not, they haven't created a hard partition, you know, between them and the rest of the world. Uh, how how am I doing? That's Pretty absolutely good. great. Yeah, yeah, I think we are doing really great. The, the, yeah, fascinating chat. So this is still feels a lot like talking tech. There's a lot of like. Mm helpfulness to people in that here's platforms, here interfaces to teams, here are good things and so on. I'm also wondering, what can we do at a tech level to encourage improvements to the social circuitry of an organization? So for instance, there we're working on this DevOps product that's, you know, platform engineering, of course, because everybody's doing platform engineering. And I've been leading up some of the design elements for it. And I have tried like, okay, yep, we need tools. Tools are over here. They're fine. We know that. That's not like novel. Everybody's doing tools. We know platform engineering and so on. But we want to do some focus on the people and process bits of the DevOps triad. But how do we do that? How do we support that inside a product? And, and so far, I've mostly focused on 
really, really emphasizing relationships between things. So you can find the groups and you can know what how they interact and how they're doing over time. And so maybe so you can you can raise visibility amplification on these teams are struggling in some ways. So let's help them. But that's it's still just about like making more visibility and so on. Huh. Can you really what can you think of that would help tech support the improvement of social circuitry? Yeah, that's a really great question. And in fact, it's so good. I wish we had put this into the book, but let's, let's see if we can sort of survey the landscape. I mean, if uh, let's just go through each one of the principles and let's see if we can uh, uh, tease out what, what they must be. So with slowification, right, I, I think uh, the, the failure mode that would emerge is uh, everyone knows that this is like the best thing, um, you know, since sliced bread. Everyone should be using it, but there's no time in the individual team schedule to actually adopt it, right? There's the pressure to ship features is so great, you know, that uh, we can't make this short-term investment even though there's a longer-term gain, right? So that's clearly a, a need for leadership to help slowify, you know, to get groups to get from here to there, Um I think that's uh, definitely one. And simplification, right? Um, you know, one failure mode would be like shift everybody all at once, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, that that's probably bad because um, you know we've now forced every group to take on a bunch of novelty, and we can't uh, learn from lessons learned of the previous group, right? So, you know, we've sort of inadvertently pushed everything to do it all at once. When probably a better approach would be something staged, right? Let's take the people who really want to do this, who see the benefits, <laughs> right? And then use that as a stepping stone, you know, for uh, you know, wider spread adoption. Uh, your I just had a I just had a, a thing that hit hit me because you put some neat diagrams in where you show the the danger zone and the uh, the good one yeah. and map things. I wonder if you could do live maps like that in a platform. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, it's actually what I'm doing right now is actually walking through kind of in each phase what are the, sort of the danger zone, uh, winning zone characteristics. Yeah. So, uh, um, uh, and so I'll, I'll sort of think out, I'll continue to think out loud and sort of explicitly name those. Uh, that's a great point, Rasmus. Um, so another um, a definite failure mode uh, would be uh, around modularization, right? So. Uh, you know, the fact that you have a, a platform capability, the goal would be to, you know, once you're on the platform, you can hide um, more of the world to the users. I mean, I think one of the amazing things about Google was uh, uh, Google Borg. And so I, I, one of the surprising things about Google Borg is that it was considered such a competitive advantage that uh, there was no mention, outside mention of it um, written down until about 2013. So it ran over a decade in production. And so it, what is Google Borg? It was the predecessor, to, uh, is what Kubernetes is models upon. It used to be the, uh, it's called the cluster manager. It's actually Kuber, uh, Google Kubernetes engine actually runs on Google Borg. <laughs> uh, most core services run on Google Borg. Um, and what was so uh, different, the difference it made to Google engineers is that you could write code as if, um, so you didn't have to worry about what happens when your code, when your server just disappears. You didn't have to worry about like which data center you're running on, right? So all the things that we take advantage of and take for granted in Kubernetes. So it was, it allowed developers to focus on, you know, the, the business um, functionality, right? Not about, Resilience, not about observability, not about um, you know, um, you know, hardening against resilience failures, and so uh, 
what's marvelous about platforms that once you're running on the platform, uh, a whole bunch of other problems are taken care of for you and you don't need to worry about them. <clears throat> so, you know, I think uh, uh, that's probably a, and it creates independence of action, right? The platform can improve independent of the teams that are running on that platform. Uh, that's a, uh, so what, what's the danger zone there, right? Is somehow um, that dependencies leak out, the abstraction leaks out so that suddenly developers now do have to worry about, you know, uh, Java logging, um, you know, configuration settings when ideally that should be hidden from them, uh, arguably. Uh, linearization is, uh, you know, when you have dependent activities uh, that ha should happen sequentially and uh, things get, intertangle between them, right? And so the beauty of CICD is that uh, not only is it automated, but the build engineers are now going to have independence of action from the QA engineers and the deployment engineers. And so we know that independence of action liberates lots of creativity and abilities to solve problems independently of each other, right? The opposite of that is what in the bad old days, 10, 15 years ago, where you have these huge uh, Gantt charts of, you know, 1,300 activities that all must happen <laughs> sequentially. And if anything goes wrong, right, you know, the entire thing, you know, might blow up. Um, and then amplification is, um, yeah, well, what's the dangers on activities there? Oh, yeah, right. Things go wrong in the system and uh, the signals don't go to where they need to go. <laughs> and uh, they're either so weak or faint that it might get transmitted but never gets received. Um, and if I can just add one story that I just love in the book is uh, the Southwest Airlines holiday failure. Um, when this was unfolding, and this is about one year ago, uh, Admiral John Richardson and uh, Steven Spear and I were texting for almost a week because it was this incredible example of uh, signals go not getting to where they needed to go, right? So, you know, the when Winter Storm Elliot hit, uh, you know, we, there were nearly 10,000 flight cancellations. Um, and what was remarkable, though, was that uh, most airlines could recover in a couple of days. But what happened at Southwest Airlines is that the number of cancellations kept increasing. And the reason why was their crew scheduling system. So as widely was reported, what happened when Southwest Airlines, at the at the end of each day, if they were not in the city they were supposed to be in, they had to call like a, a special number in the crew scheduling office. And uh, they had hold times of, you know, half hour, hours, sometimes scores of hours. So if that information didn't get factored into the schedule, when uh, the next day the planes weren't where they thought the scheduling system would be, right? And so they had to cancel the flight. And so uh, ultimately what they had to do was essentially reboot the uh, airline network, right, just to fly these empty planes to where they need to be to resume normal operations. And so this was such a great example of where the control overlay, the layer three circle, social circuitry could not transmit information effectively enough to where it needed to go to the people at the edge. Uh, so I thought this is a, such a great example of, you know, control theory in action happening, you know, at a, in a, in a, in a space where you could actually see the consequences, right? <laughs> and where the uh, information was actually being transited by telephone, right? Into crew scheduling systems. Anyway, uh, how, how am I doing? Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Um, the question of like level one, level two, level three is a really interesting um, interplay because you're right. Just as the social circuitry is built on those relationships and those interconnected uh, coupling and loosely coupling <laughs> as you define in the book. And yeah, yeah, that's really good. The reality is, though, I think um, 
in the case of Southwest, that's a really good example. We see examples like this all the time of customers who are dealing with the issue of I don't have the right environment to be in that winning in that winning sphere. <laughs> and there's only so many things that I levers I can pull really quickly. One of the levers I can pull is I can swap out GitHub for GitLab, right? I can I can do these kinds of okay, cool. Everyone's now on this thing. But as Rasmus was asking about, and I, and I I think I agree. The issue really is in that in that relationship between level two and three. It seems to me with the customers we talk to and the way that we work to, uh, and the way we operate with them, there are things that can happen at level two that are almost those pre those um, pre pre ordered conditions. Those things that actually enable just the very basics. So you're talking about you're talking about um, amplification. Amplification, getting something to the right person at the right time, is kind of a tiny bit of automation. If you're looking at it in that level two sense, right? Tiny bit of automation, but it's also quite a lot of actually, you really need to know a bit more about who you're dealing with. You need to know a bit more about the team. You need to know a bit more about what they're doing, what they're working on. Otherwise, everyone is just getting blasted with, hey, somebody uploaded something to the board. Oh, God, I can't even <laughs> imagine the notification queue. You know what I mean? Yeah. In fact, um, so one of the things I'm, I'm hoping people will really remember out of the book is uh, the story of Steve and Gene moving a couch. And the story goes... You know, uh, Steve and Gene need to move a couch, and you would think that this is all Ron work, no brain work allowed. And uh, it turns out that there's actually a ton of problems that they need to solve, like where's the center of gravity, you know, uh, to get through a narrow doorway around which axis do they need to rotate to get down a narrow winding set of stairs, you know, who should go first and do they face forwards or backwards. And what's remarkable is that, you know, they don't need a bunch of consultants. They don't need focus groups, right? Just by picking up the couch through trial and error, fast feedback, right? And communication coordination, yeah, they will probably figure out how to solve uh, the problem. But there's all these leaders, there's all these things that leaders can do to make it very difficult for Steve and Gene to do their work. Uh, they can turn off all the lights, right? Which is, uh, you know, makes the work more dangerous. It will take longer. People could get hurt. Furniture could get damaged. Uh, uh, we could... Uh, also, like, uh, introduce a lot of background noise, like a siren, like a loud, loud music, um, which is makes the problem more difficult, but in a way different than just turning off the lights. Uh, we could introduce an intermediary that prevents Steve and Gene from talking directly with each other. Uh, we can make them go through JIRA tickets. We can make them, uh, uh, you know, go through uh, work orders with lawyers involved, account managers, <laughs> right? Uh, and what's remarkable is that uh, is that this too will make it very difficult for Steve and Gene to do their work. And so moving a couch is a metaphor for joint cognition and joint problem solving. And so what you were saying, Neil, is that uh, uh, often the best thing that we can do is embed you know, someone from the platform engineering group into the dev team because uh, the, the developers may not have the language to be able to describe what they need, right? And so the best thing that we can do is to actually have a platform engineering expert observe their work, right? To deeply understand the problem, to help them on board, or to better yet, you know, maybe if there's something that the platform can't do, um, build it for them because these platform engineers are so expert that they can understand what needs to be done Um even though the customer can't even articulate what the problems are, <laughs> right? And so I was mentioning to somebody, uh, I actually saw properly formed Kubernetes deployment file, and it was so shocking to me. And it made me realize I don't even know what correct YAML looks like. <laughs> so uh, and this is not where I want to be spending my time. Um, and, and so 
if I can just add one more thing on that. Yeah. So the, uh, whenever you have people moving a couch, it means that they're inherently coupled together. You know, what affects the couch affects Steve and Gene. What affects Gene affects Steve and vice versa. Um, and, you know, so sometimes that coupling is uh, inherent in the problem. Dev and ops, uh, it turns out that you that was a problem so uh, there were so many problems to be solved and the information that needed to be transferred was so great that dev and ops have to be coupled together, right? Um, and it, microservices represents where you don't actually need a lot of communication and coordination. And my favorite example of this was um, the Apollo Capcoms. It turns out like uh, during the Apollo space program, for the crew in space, it turns out there were only like about 10 people on the ground who are allowed to communicate with them. Uh, they were called the Capcoms, and they were astronauts. And they were not just any astronauts. They were either the people who trained the astronauts in space or they were the backup crew. And so when uh, you have an emergency in space, it turns out the bandwidth is so finite and the need to communicate and coordinate is so um, critical that you actually need an uh, an astronaut on both sides of the channel, <laughs> right? Um, because as uh, Alan, what Alan Kay once said, uh, when a message is very is so important, don't send a message. You must send a messenger, <laughs> right? And so it just says when moving a couch, sometimes the best thing you can do is actually own both sides of the couch, right? Uh, so that you can get maximum information through that sc scarce, sparse channel. Uh, this is a great example, right? I mean, uh, as I said before, you know, we 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 look at transforming organizations, and one of the things that we try to train people on is don't look at it just the solution, look at also the problem, right? And people come to us and ask, hey, I'm Steven Jean, I need help moving this couch. Now take a pause and ask, okay, why are you actually moving the couch? Okay, we can <laughs> definitely help you move the couch. You know, we have all the tools and, you know, the people to move the couch, but why are you actually trying to move the couch? That probably might tell you uh, an answer where you don't have to actually move the couch. There may be a better yeah. solution out there, right? Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely. also why it's also why is moving the couch hard? I love that question. Our CTO John who couldn't make it to, with us on on this episode, but we'll be in a future one. This is a question I ask all the time. It's like, what about this conversation is hard, right? Okay, there's a couch. Couch moving is something most people can do. What's going on here? But Gene, it's not going to surprise you. We're one of these groups that's unique. And I, um, in other podcast episodes, we've talked about this, about our structure and how we operate. I was, Rasmus and I are giggling behind the scenes as you're talking about this, because this relationship in our group, we actually have those project managers. We even have legal involved sometimes when we're working together in contracts. And it, the reason why we can do that is because of our consultative background, because of the growth that we've had in our product businesses, we're actually pretty good at writing a minimum viable contract. And I, and I truly mean writing on a piece of paper like a minimum viable. And actually right now, my customer in the room is Rasmus. So in between our business units, the way we're operating, we actually have these internal contracts and statements of work. And the reason why we do this is we codify the way of working into the contract. And in some cases, what you need is, oh, you need staff augmentation. You need mm -hmm. someone dedicated in your team doing what you do, whatever. Sometimes they go, or your customer internal or external might go, you know what, I don't need the people. I really just don't care about Java logging. I really don't want to care about this. I never do. Cool, we've got an app that solves that. And I was, I was laughing as you were telling us, one of the groups working with us right now has solved that logging problem four different ways. 
One's a consultancy, <laughs> one's a managed service, one's a product, and one's an SDK, right? And in each one of these areas, depending on how you want to not think about Java logging, right. you know, <laughs> that. but it's one of those very good, you've got a lot of really good examples. Rasmus, we were talking about the Reno example, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the one? Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm a big fan of the hotel renovation example in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the yeah, 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 yeah. Couch movement. And especially because I could see myself in there, which leads to a question. Because for me, I also wonder when I'm looking at the book, great book, new perspective, new terms, love it. Who is it for? And I'll, I'll, I'll put myself into the example for that because I feel like sometimes I'm a little bit of a, of a, a weirdo nobody. <laughs> I don't have reports. Same here, by the way. <laughs> I don't have an area of authority. I post things on Slack and nobody listens. So like, can I do anything with this book other than just like throw it at people and try to hit them or like get them to read it? <laughs> but then I put, I put myself in that example. I'm, I, it's like I am standing outside the hotel and I'm seeing all these movers and painters run all over the place and they're like <laughs> flying out the window. And there are these two dudes trying <laughs> to organize it and like they're getting places. They finally figure out some 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 things. But then I'm like, I can see something. I have an idea. I think it'll help. But like, I'm out here. I'm a nobody. How can I help? How can I be in the picture? Yeah. Um, by the way, one of my favorite uh, descriptions of the Phoenix Project was uh, it was exactly that use case. Uh, as he would throw the book, uh, and I think he said he had a special version with like serrated edges <laughs> right? that he would throw the book at people. I, I think that was definitely uh, metaphorical <laughs> figurative. But you get to I think the most important question that anyone writing a book should be asking from the very beginning is like, who is the book for? We specifically targeted the book at uh, the boss of the technology leader. So it has been I've been one of my areas of passion for the last 10 years has been studying, you know, we've called the DevOps Enterprise Community. And uh, so we've had 19 conferences, you know, over 1,100 experience reports, uh, 1,500 leaders. And the goal is to really chronicle the transformations of, you know, technology leaders in large complex organizations. And we recently renamed it the Enterprise Technology Leadership Summit because a lot of people were saying, uh, why would I want to go to a deployment pipeline conference? It's like, oh, that's not what the word DevOps was meant to connote, uh, you know, back in 2009. At any rate, um, uh, so the observation is, you know, I would say twofold. One is that the people driving these kind of DevOps transformations where they're trying to break down silos to better create value to help win in the marketplace, they're being hired at a, they were being promoted at a rate far higher than uh, the rest of the population. Uh, this is both um, for the, you know, quote, managers and the individual contributors. Um, but it's been my observation that even those people, their fates were heavily reliant on who their boss was. And if that boss changed, uh, it could go from great to not so great in, in a heartbeat. And it just said to me that the technology function is so often misunderstood. And so... Um, Steve has his own goals, but my goal uh, was really how do we show things like, you know, platform engineering, team topologies, you know, breaking down silos. These are important for every organization, and it can be made explainable, not 
just to that technology leader's boss, uh, but it, we can make it, we can explain it in a way that will resonate in their own experiences, which one of the things I'm proud of uh, that many people will find surprising is that of the 25 case studies, uh, to, uh, only less than a quarter of them are technology related. So I think the benefit of that is, and, and you know, the examples that we bring up are, you know, uh, Steve's experience bringing his daughter into an emergency room uh, for a broken wrist and uh, finding that, oh, oh my gosh, uh, they had to wait in hours in the waiting room. Uh, the x-ray was initially taken, uh, was going to be taken on the wrong um, arm because of the doc incorrect documentation or in uh, unreadable documentation, the cast was uh, instead of fiberglass. It's very kid friendly. It was actually a plaster cast, um, you know, because of a breakdown with uh, in the communication with supply chain to make the follow up appointment. I actually required them calling an outside line and to a number that no one actually knew. <laughs> it's just so all these things were indicative of um, you know inadequate layer three you know social circuitry. And it turns out like uh, you know these problems can be found in any engineering and any organization doing significant things. So I would say that the, the and even the, the choice of the forward from Admiral uh, John Richardson, former chief of Naval operations uh, for the entire U S Navy. Uh, you know, he's on the board of Boeing. Uh, he's has to oversee the performance of uh, CEOs and highly consequential uh, organizations. The, the goal is, was to aim for, uh, the people that he interacts with, the people that are, you know, the technology leader's boss has to interact with to make it relevant to them, not just something, you know, bespoke to technology, but no, this is a, uh, something that is universal to the way organizations work. So, um, my hope is that this enables that use case to say, hey, look, there's something really bad happening here because we're not slowifying, we're not modularizing, we're not uh, linearizing, we're not amplifying. Here's a book that explains why it's important, uh, what it is, and how it's relevant to us, and provides some prescription um, that you know, I think any technology leader, you know, that means leaders at all levels, internal and external, uh, can, we can use to help drive a business case for things that we need to do to get from here to there. So you're telling me that I don't need to get a book with serrated edges and throw That's it right. at people to knock him out, take his job, and then tell people <laughs> to that. I can actually make it otherwise. I, I love this. Gene, I have to tell you, you've reminded me a story from a story of my past, and I've never told this story as a breakdown in level three social circuitry. But I'm going to start this story in a way that most people in the UK where I live now won't be able to really recognize. I was held up at gunpoint in Oakland, California. It's a long story. It's a oh, long yeah. story. We'll, we'll shorten this story to say this was the year that Find My iPhone came out for the dev. Uh, people, so people had access to um, Apple developer community, right? I had enabled that on an iPad and I had just bought a little 4G device, which used to be huge, right? I'm given my age, but I was robbed at gunpoint. They stole the iPad and they stole the 4G device, stole the whole bag. I'm at my house and the Oakland Police Department, who at the time was pretty infamous for not being really great. They're much better now, but at the time they, they were having some trouble. They asked, they luckily asked the question because it's Silicon Valley. They said, do you have anything in, in your bag that can be tracked? I went, aha, level two, aha, I have, I have enabled the tool, fine. Turns out it was on uh, Highway 280. So they say, get in the back of the car. So I'm riding around <laughs> the back of a car following, find my iPhone, and I'm hoping it works. This is my trust in Apple that the developer community was there. Turns out it did. We get, we get to a pizza place, it's a long story near, near Fruitvale, and sure enough, we find the car, we find the bag. 
In fact, it was the 14th thing that had gotten stolen that day, including the car. Ah, level two on the game. Now, here's the problem with level three. I identified two types of police officers that day. There's the police officers who were level three engaged. They had their social circuitry switched on or they were ready to accept social circuitry. They came to me and they asked the question, how did you do this? Because this is unique. How did this happen? And I explained, oh, we'll find my iPhone. If anybody in the next month says they've turned this on, this is a thing that you all can use. Oh, this is incredible. Sans one. One of them, won't name them, don't know their name really, said, hang on, what you mean? You can track any iPhone. No, 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 no. It's only yours. You turn on for your family, blah, blah, blah. So you're saying my spouse can track my phone. Ah, okay. Breakdown. Social, social circuitry. Sorry, you're not kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could see the divide. There was a gap and it wasn't an age gap. It wasn't a gender gap. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, there are people who were looking at that level two, the increase in the technology as a capability that they could use. And possibly you might call in some cases surveil. In this case, I had approval <laughs> to be surveilled. Thank you very much. It helped me out. But right. It's just one of these very interesting things. You're right. These are technology problems for sure. And people who are operating in technology organizations or enabled organizations, they have these problems more than most. But this is a problem even if with petty crime. Yeah. This is a problem with you know theft on the street, one might argue. And I'll just uh, resonate with that story. And I, I, so in you know adoption, you know, we're always looking for these uh, early adopters who are not just uh, have a desire and a knack for finding promising technology to solve the next kind of uh, horizon of problems, but they're also uh, trusted. Uh, they're vocal. Um, they uh, you know people view them as uh you know the early adopters so you know do you want to use this new platform uh, no i'll wait to see how, what neil neil's experiences are because we trust his judgment <laughs> now so whoever this uh these mavens are you know whoever he or she may be right uh, they serve a very important function because uh they are um uh judgmental they're critical <laughs> they ideally they have the best long-term interests of the organization at heart right they're not doing it just for technology's sake but they're doing it because uh they uh have a sense of like what how people should be working right what problems shouldn't they be working on uh like java logging important but not something that uh is an area should be an area of expertise for you know thousands of engineers uh in fact can i just tell you a brief story of like you know the uh, some patterns I, I love around platform adoption. Uh, I'll tell you three of them because one of them just you were just reminding me of. There was a presentation at uh, uh, the DevOps Enterprise Summit 2015. It was Ralph Laura, CIO of uh, HP. This was before the split up, and you know he said kind of the role of shared services. We view them as uh, buoys, not boundaries. So the metaphor he was using was uh, uh, like in a river channel, right? You stay within the buoys, you know, you're going to be safe. You know, they're, they're dredged, they're highly maintained. Uh, but if you need to uh, stray beyond the buoys, right, uh, you can, you have to make a business case for it. You have to follow the same principles that we do, like, you know, we're on security, compliance, and so forth. But, you know, we encourage you to do that because that might be the next, you know, that innovation might be the next thing that we have to take into, you know, within the buoys. Uh, I thought that was great. Um, and I think directionally it was just a, a, just such a beautiful aha moment for like what leaders needed to be doing in terms of saying norms around innovation. The second case study was uh, Target 2017. And so uh, for those in the UK, uh, Target is the sixth largest retailer in the US. And, you know, it's one of the organizations I've studied the most over the last uh, 
decade. And so they famously outsourced almost all of the technology um, folks. You know, that's thousands of engineers. And uh, 2013, they started bringing them back in. And you know the the seminal moment was was Ross Clanton, uh, director of uh, development. Actually, I think he was director of architecture and operations. He was formerly security. He said his aha moment was when they had to make a schema change to their data warehouse, and the estimates came back at at ten thousand hours and one million dollars because it was spread between three different outsourcers. And he said that should be fifteen minutes of work. <laughs> what are we doing wrong? Anyway, uh, so they. Uh, to tone for their policy errors, or uh, they wanted every development team to be able to choose the technologies they used uh, to help atone for decades of you know uh, not allowing them to do that. So in 2017, uh, Levi Gaynor, the director of engineering, uh, he described this problem they had, which was that uh, you know they had ch- allowed so many technologies to come into the organization that developers could no longer switch teams. Easily because they had all they're all using different technology stacks, and so what did they do about it? He described a quarterly meeting that they had with their CIO at the time, Mike McNamara, and they published three lists uh, as their kind of new mechanism of governance, and it was just amazing. They said first category, uh, everything lived on the GitHub uh, repo. The first category was here's a technology that we love, and here's all the groups using it. Second technology group was, uh, we're not sure yet, but here's all the groups using it. You know, so if you want to know the goods and bads, you know, just ask them. Third is do not use. You know, we have active projects to deprecate this middleware database. <laughs> Don't make a new one, which we then have to uh, then eradicate from the enterprise. So I love that because it was just so different than, you know, the what I've seen lead architecture review boards do, you know, in you know for generations. So the third one came from Comcast. So uh, they own uh, Sky in the UK. They own Universal Pictures, uh, the largest broadband uh, provider in the US. About eight thousand engineers, and they said, "You know, we want every engineer, every uh, technologist to be innovating all the time, but not in certain areas." Uh, they said, um, "Especially not in CI/CD pipelines, because we've already got fourteen of them in use." <laughs> right, yeah, we should have one or maybe two. And they described this process they went through where it wasn't really a popularity contest. It wasn't like, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> which you know they settled. On, so they wanted to get choose a technology that uh, they rated from one to five. Um, and the goal wasn't to pick the technology with the most number of number ones. It was like who who had the most number of answers of three or better. Three meaning I could support it if. And what was remarkable was uh, Jonathan Moore, one of the uh, presenters, he was the chief software architect. He said, well, it, was, it was amazing that we could get to a set of technologies, be, even though there was no short-term gain from any of the development groups. But everyone saw that there was a long-term gain. And it was actually caused by an outage that happened because a certain team uh, was using a CI/CD platform that didn't understand very well, that wasn't really well supported in the organization, and so the goal was let's pick one or two that we could get really, really good at, <laughs> and then you know create a transition plan where you know we could move you know thousands of teams you know, onto these one or two platforms. Anyway, so they seem mutually contradictory, and yet I think all of them are made with a uh, with the same sort of intent. Right? How do we enable teams to 
do what they do best, right? And uh, enable them and lift the tide you know, that lifts all boats. Absolutely great. The rising tide lift all boats metaphor is a really interesting one. And it, it's interesting in that context of the buoys, because you're right. We actually, this is, this is our stated uh, CTO strategy for us. And this is how we approach our consultancy, our products and, and everything else that we do. But those shared services are a guide, are guideposts, and they should be the center of gravity of where everyone probably needs to go. However, when they're not, and when they're not fit for purpose, every group that we've got has the autonomy to decide a different path or an amended path or recompose some of these services together to bring out something that's more fit for purpose and yeah. commit it back to the core. To go, actually, we like this way. We just swapped our identity providers. We were an auth zero <laughs> shop for most of our customer facing things. I think I saw you giggling about this on Twitter about auth zero yeah. and ChatGPT, right? Like how? Oh my God, what is the bill? Yeah, we we had that at a much smaller level, right? So we shifted to these guys called Clerk, which are doing really great. But what what came very quickly was their dev experience was so good. We took it and we put those babies out and went, Everybody, the, the runway is a lot shorter than we thought to getting out of that innovation, you know, early adopter phase. This is, at, this is actually fit for purpose. What do we need to do to scale this? What do we need to do to enable others to get the same successes that some of these other groups got? It's this kind of shifting of the organization across different groups, right? And what a brilliant property of modularization. The fact that you could switch... Um, uh, authentication providers uh, without impacting all of your customers, right? And having them, um, you can make all your changes on your side of the interface without affecting them. Uh, absolutely marvelous. And by the way, Rasmus, it just occurred to me while uh, Neil was talking. Uh, so another tool that one could use, right, to kind of reshape or uh, uh, create signals to trigger reshaping the layer three social circuitry is Net Promoter Score. So one of my favorite uh, tools that is used within. Um, the technology leadership community is um, employee net promoter score and net promoter scores. Is like uh, everyone competes in the internal marketplace. You know, very few organizations these days say you must use this, and you, there are no ability to choose the competition. And I think the modern reality is whenever, you're, especially for platforms, you are competing against other platforms. And so, how do you measure that? One is net promoter score. And this is a simple question. On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, to what degree would you recommend this to a colleague or friend? And, uh, you know, the secret is, I think the answer is, uh, goes from negative 100 to 100. And you, you're only really counting the 9s and 10s. And great scores are like 60 and above. Um, certain shared services I learned, uh, one group, it was, it was for an SAP security role administrator change. Uh, they had an SLA of being able to make changes in two weeks. They averaged about two and a half months. They had a net promoter score of negative uh, 87, which is actually the lowest <laughs> I've ever heard of. I, I knew they could go negative. I didn't know they could go to negative 100. At any rate, um, uh, this amazing technology leader said, we love shared services, but not here. They actually broke up the team. They put those SAP security experts into the business units. And you know now it's like at you know plus 40, uh, which just shows... Same people, same equipment. <laughs> the only thing that changed is the wiring, right? And it just shows how the difference maker so often is in that layer three social circuitry. Well, if you want to throw some more concepts and things I can put in my platform or need a new co-author for the next book, let me know. <laughs> and by the way, what a great example of like, uh, uh, those, and it explains why like great platforms, great SaaS products often have a little pop-up box to say, you know, not only can I help, but like uh, on a one to ten, how likely would you be to recommend this 
service to your friend, right? It's actually a powerful signal of, uh, um, you know, to what extent people love using your platform. We actually combine the, um, so we use NPS all over the place. Internally, it's not as used as it is external, but we're one of the few groups that we know in our space that actually do it on every consultative arrangement too. Mm. Which is, you know, if you like the relationship you've had with us, and most importantly, it's not just the people that you got, our brand, what your expectations are, but it's also, was the mode of operation what you expected? Were you sold what you were actually <laughs> delivered? Like every one of those subtle um, promoter questions, and they're not always using NPS, they're, all, they're sometimes using a different variant, but yeah. That feedback loop super important. And it also, in internally, we see this in our group. It's predicated on the idea that you know you're the customer and you know that shared service is a vendor. And as long as you have those expectations, you put those hats on and you have that relationship and you know at the end of the day, you're going to be providing a net rotor score to this group and how they, how they are giving you feedback, you're in the driver's seat. You yeah. can ask for what you want. And someone may not take your contract. We've had some situations where that happens too, right? Which is going... Well, I need this mode of operation. Cool. This group can't do that. We need to find a different way, right? This isn't going to be the way that we operate. Totally fine if you've got that. I don't know if you've come across the boundary list, guys. Uh, Simone um, has that podcast, which is really good. They oh, they oh. preach composable business. Yeah, like this is this is one of the the big tenets of how we operate. We we love those guys. The boundary list kids are really are really fun. But um, yeah, that this is d- definitely part and part of our DNA how we operate. If I can just riff on that just briefly. Sure. And so one of the core theses, theses, one of the core, one of the theses that, one of the things that we really built a book on was, you know, the job of leaders is to make it so that uh, the people uh, that they support can do their work easily and well. And, you know, the work that uh, I helped contribute, one of the things I was so proud of to work on was the state of DevOps research with Doc Nicole Forsgren and Jess Humble, you know, from 2013 to 2019, and that's when I really got introduced to uh, the Employee Net Promoter Score. The notion that you know, um, instead of our products, like you know, would you recommend your team as a great place to work to your colleagues and friends? And it's such a great signal uh, that says, you know, is it? Po- <laughs> I think you can start start tracing the dots of like why, what makes it so that you would want to recommend your job to a someone you care about, you know, to a colleague or friend. Uh, if if it requires heroics to even get small things done, <laughs> if everything requires tons of communication, coordination, and authorization, and synchronization, and deconfliction, and blah, 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 right? I mean, that's not a fun place to work. Uh, you can see this in developer experience, but I think it's true for anything in general. If you don't have enough time allocated for slowification, and all your work is uh, horrendous, difficult, dangerous... <laughs> scary, um, you know, this is, these are not great working conditions and leaders are responsible for creating those conditions. Um, and so I would just encourage any leader to say, all right, uh, maybe a very important signal that I need is not just telemetry around my product, but, you know, uh, that basic telemetry of, are people happy? <laughs> Do people like being on this team? One of the things I'd learned from the uh, uh, Dr. Jennifer Petoff, uh, who's until recently it was based in Ireland, um, a, a director of SRE at Google. She, I asked her, how are, um, how are directors of SRE measured, right? It's not, you know, can't be based on the success of the products they support, right? Uh, she said one of the dominant measures are, you know, to what degree are, you know, the SREs working underneath them uh, happy? <laughs> how satisfied are they that they can do their job well? And that was just a, such a terrific um 
uh, validation of this notion, you know, of the job of leaders. It's just funny that you mentioned Google just recently announced that Dora metrics doesn't necessarily cover that the happiness, the measure of happiness, the burnout, those kind of things, because the four core met- core Dora metrics, you know, they they f- focus on time to market and things like that. Doesn't really cover is Rasmus happy or is Jobby yeah. happy? <laughs> but but you know the, the key finding was that you know those technical measures also correlate with organizational performance, which include you know to what degree uh, are we exceeding profit share, uh, profitability, market share, and productivity goals, and you know we know that you know. Uh, it also influences employee net promoter score. Those high performers were twice as likely, you know, uh, people were twice as likely to recommend their organizations as a great place to work. Um, and by the way, just a little trivia fact, uh, the, where did that employee net promoter score come from? It actually came from a guy named Dr. Andre Martin, who was uh, later VP of People Dev at Google. And uh, uh, he just uh, came out with a book, great book called uh, Right Fit, Wrong Fit. Anyway, just uh, uh, that actually came from a series of text messages in twenty. 20- 15 or 2016. <laughs> and that's, uh, it was like, oh my gosh, Nicole, like I, I have a great question. It was like, we've been searching for like this um, culture score, um, you know, this one called the uh, Gallup 13, but we can't ask 13 questions. <laughs> so it turns out the employee net promoter score is this incredible um, sort of uh, uh, collapse of that one question uh, of, of, of this engagement uh, questions that are often used in HR circles. Do you know where I'd love to like ask what the net promoter score is? It's in a company called um, Parts Unlimited. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering, um, as we kind of start to wrap up, um, I think back to, to to Brent in Parts Unlimited, Maxine um, in in the Unicorn Project, um, very very ha- unhappy developers, <laughs> whoever they are, and now we're talking about rewiring um, organisations with. Um, with so, social circuitry, do you think, as an industry, if you look at the you know the period between like the Phoenix Project, the Unicorn Project, coming on to um, the latest book, are we actually getting there? Um, are we speaking to the same people um, with uh, with with the new book, um, or is um, or the NPS scores just going to be terrible forever? What do you think? Oh, in fact, you know, it's funny. In the Unicorn Project, uh, uh, they actually do a net promoter score, and within the businesses uh, within the store managers, right? With the right store manager, it was world-class. I think it was like 50 plus. And then uh, they asked, yeah. what is it for IT? And I would think it was negative <laughs> 14. So, but, uh, you know, I think uh, the story ends where, uh, you know, the technologists were some of the most switched on people in the group where that they were attracting the best talent, not just from technology, but, you know, also from, quote, the business. So I think... Um, you know, if the question is, you know, uh, are we making any progress? And I have to say, the answer from my perspective is, um, you know, undisputably yes. You know, having chronicled uh, the technology leadership journey for the last 10 years across you know, 1,100 plus experience reports, there's just no doubt in my mind, you know, that uh, increasingly uh, business leadership recognizes that the technology organization is a critical competency to win in the marketplace. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they might, you know, it's not a hundred percent, but it's so much larger than it was before. And, and so I credit, you know, those incredible technology leaders who helped pioneer, um, you know, these practices that were typically only associated with the tech giants, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, and showing that, Hey, it's relevant for everybody. I mean, I just, uh, I'm so grateful for, um, 
you know, the ability to help chronicle that those journeys because I, I think it affects all of us. You're exactly right. Um, and Gartner refers to those those giants you're referring to as the digital dragons. And I and I love mm. this sort of ostentatiousness of that idea. But I have to say to sort of round out and sort of to drop your last questions, it's been so it's a breath of fresh air. It feels so good to have an entire podcast where we didn't say chat GPT once. <laughs> but I broke the but I broke the seal. So all of this is great. And as you're writing your book, I'm sure none of this has come out yet. Where where are you at with this? Like, how do you, how are you looking at this new, this new technology? Because, uh, you know, no one yet is saying, oh, this is killing DevOps. They're talking about industries that are changing quite drastically with these new generative capabilities coming in. Have you been playing with this recently? Like, what's, what's been the, what's been the plan, man? Uh, it has been so fun. I gotta tell you, I haven't had this much fun in technology in 20 plus years. I just, uh, it's so radically different. <laughs> It's not yeah. deterministic. It's amazing. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I've been having just a ton of fun doing that's been just a huge eye-opener for me is um, uh, I, I, I'm publishing this new video podcast called uh, Thinking Out Loud. So it's kind of a, a little extension on the Idealcast podcast that I've uh, done for several years. Um, and so it's just a little easier lift than the Idealcast podcast episodes. So one of the things that uh, I did was use ChatGPT uh, to confirm some things that I actually want to do during the writing, uh, but only have had a chance to do now that the book's out. One of them was, uh, uh, you know, I gave ChatGPT, GPT-4, uh, the couch analogy, <clears throat> and then asked it, you know, can you um, validate and explain to me how uh, the couch metaphor uh, can simultaneously explain the Amazon re-architecture of the early 2000s. Um, and it said, yes, absolutely. You know, Amazon 2001 was 3,500-ish engineers all coupled to one couch. So in order for any of them to get anything done, they had to coordinate with 3,500 other engineers. And so they split it up into microservices, right, into smaller couches, right, to regain independence of action. I'm like, awesome. All right, now here's the Amazon... Uh, Prime video example. Please explain to me using the couch as a metaphor <laughs> what that is. Like, oh, exactly. It was like they had split the couches into too many little tiny fragments so that, um, you know, too much of the effort was in coordination and transport, copying these video files in and out of storage buckets. I'm like, yes, exactly. So the countermeasure was glue the couches back together into one monolith <laughs> so that, you know, they could all be, you know, co recreate coherence. I just love that because I think the mark of a good model is that, uh, you know, it can explain the most with the least. And uh, I'm just amazed at how good chat TPT is, not at just summarization, but, you know, making these kind of uh, inferences and taking metaphors. And uh, for me, it's just using it to help sort of concretize and validate my own thinking. Man, it's just so fun. And for the technology leadership community, we, we spent the first uh, part of this interview talking about like how much harder life is when there are more functional specialties. Oh man, with generative AI, just add one more functional specialty to the left, right? You know, you got to all the data and AI and AI engineers on the left and dev has to go meet them there. And we also have to push them further to the right in production. I mean, that is as if our job weren't difficult enough. We've just added one more thing that the layer three social circuitry has to do, which is integrate this whole bunch of people who don't look <laughs> like your typical engineer and integrate them into the value stream. And 
introduce a whole bunch of risks that we've never had to deal with uh, in production, right? I think it's uh, a phenomenal frontier, and uh, it just shows that what worked for us one year is may not work be enough to work the next year. It's, it's great to well, have in the game. And adaptation is key, isn't it? Right, because yeah. your way of your way of building content last year is not the way you need to protect yourself from content that's created this year. You know, I agree with you. the The landscape is vast, and the cliffs are are buried. You don't know. You don't know where <laughs> the, where those black holes lie. Right. It's fascinating too. The mathematics behind them. You're right about ChatGPT. ChatGPT as an interface is one thing. GPT four is the underlying technology is another. We're seeing organizations looking at uh, Mistral and even uh, Facebook's Llama, right? <laughs> looking at how these things compare against each other. Because depending on what task you're doing and depending on what guidance you're giving it and things like this, what supporting material makes its way in, how you're cutting your sentences apart, it's just a whole new world that, um, frankly, yeah, we're looking at it exactly the same way going, this is really exciting. It's a really exciting time to be in tech. It know? is. This is and, probably uh, a whole other podcast. <laughs> This and is I'll, it. Honestly, you could talk all day on this, couldn't you? And I have to say, it's uh, in the Enterprise Technology Leadership Summit uh, for the last year, we've had like about a 20 to 30% of talks on generative AI. And it's just so exciting to see how much energy it just injects into the conference because it's it dazzles us. It tells us what's possible. Uh, it excites us in terms of like what we can do for our organization. And it's also you know the next frontier that technology leadership uh, probably invariably has to tackle. But as we tackle that, people will always be there. (laughs) And so that's what I appreciate about your book is it wasn't just platitudes on leadership. Like here's some things, nice things to say about leadership and how to live it. It's, it's like practical. Here's how to help people be able to work better. And I think that it can lead a conversation in with this AI frontier. Here's how we can integrate people and help people to work more efficiently with it. Uh, Laura, I have to say, um, you've actually mentioned one of my favorite words, platitudes. It's actually uh, something I despise to my core. It's like uh, uh, the worst fear would be to write a book of platitudes. And uh, my favorite one is buy low, sell high. Technically correct, but not really useful, right? It's, it's all about the how. So I, d- I just love that you brought that up. Like one, one should be suspicious of platitudes. Well, we appreciate your time here today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, it was a very enlightening conversation and I would love to continue it more. Um, so maybe we can do that, but thanks for joining us to discuss, uh, DevOps decrypted on this podcast. We hope you're enjoying the show. Let us know what you think on social media at Adaptivist. We look forward to keeping this conversation going there. So for Gene Kim and our Adaptivist panel, which includes Jobin, Rasmus, uh, Matt, and Neil, I'm Laura Laramore, and DevOps Decrypted is part of the Adaptivist Live Podcast Network. 